This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, we go back to the Henry Ed one last time. It's the thrilling conclusion with Henry V. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. Not today, O oh Lord. Oh, not today. Think not upon the fault my father made encompassing the crown. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. As always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is Henry V in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of Europe. War is brewing between England and France, and Henry V, the English king, has decided to lead his troops into battle. Among them are Pistol, Nim, and Bardolph, who knew the king when he was a wayward prince getting drunk. After putting down an attempt at rebellion by some lords, the king leads his soldiers into a victory where they take the town of Harfleur. Not long after, Bardolph is caught robbing a church, and the king has him executed. As tensions continue to boil, it becomes clear that a decisive battle will happen on the fields of Agincourt. The night before the battle, Henry disguises himself as a commoner and walks among his troops, engaging in philosophical discussions with both soldiers and the generals. The next day, he gives the St. Crispin's Day speech, you know, the one that goes, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, before leading his soldiers to another victory, after which France surrenders, and Henry, as part of his reward, marries the French princess. Nim is hanged for looting, Pistol survives, and generally everyone ends the play believing that Henry was a really, really great king. Devoted listeners to this podcast will recall that I've mentioned my novel, The Thunder of Giants, features Henry V as part of the plot. In my book, one of the characters starts to learn English by using the language lesson scene. This is the scene where Catherine, the French princess, attempts to learn l'anglais in case she ends up having to marry the English king. Comment appelez-vous la main en anglais? La main? Il est appelé the hand. The hand. One of the women in my book calls this scene the most boring one Shakespeare ever wrote, a sentiment which I'm afraid she stole entirely from me. In the book Filthy Shakespeare, author Pauline Kiernan argues that the entire scene is one sexual pun after another, and that to an Elizabethan audience, the scene would have come across as body and outrageous. Now, Kiernan may be right, but that doesn't really help modern audiences, who, I fear, must suffer through this scene whenever it is performed. The French princess is terrified she's about to be forced to marry an English king, which makes her desperation to learn English a little bitter. The subtext is interesting, but I've yet to see it be introduced in a satisfying way. Now, this isn't the only time that this occurs in Henry V, which works to juxtapose the rise of Henry with his effect on those around him, from his fellow courtiers, to a French princess, to the soldiers in the field. Now, sometimes this works, as in the scene where the soldiers talk fearfully the night before the Battle of Agincourt, and sometimes it doesn't, as in the terrible scene with the French princess. Now, contrast this with the fact that almost every scene involving Henry himself is electric, and what you're left with is a play that can be wildly uneven if left in the wrong hands. 
This unevenness is only highlighted by the unfortunate habit of performing Henry V as a separate entity, a standalone play that exists entirely on its own. Next to Richard III, Henry V is Shakespeare's most popular history, owing both to the success of two major film adaptations and the annoying habit of theater practitioners to use the play as a social allegory for whatever is bothering them in any given particular year. The play's deceptively simple story would seem to lend itself towards various interpretations, a young king goes to war against a stronger adversary, and emerges victorious largely through his own rhetoric and the grace of God. It's over this skeleton that theatre artists have used the play as a theatrical reply to the conflicts of World War II, the Falklands, and Iraq. But while directors may delight in the opportunity to display their social conscience, and actors celebrate the chance to utter famous speeches, the play itself continues to suffer. On its own, Henry V comes across as largely episodic, a story that could easily be retitled Scenes from the Life of a King. But Henry V is not a standalone play. It is, to quote the critic Norman Rapkin, quote, the capstone to an edifice of plays tightly mortared to one another, end quote. When we view Henry V in isolation, rather than as the final part in a tetralogy, we cannot fully grasp Shakespeare's intent or the scope of his accomplishment. The recent BBC miniseries The Hollow Crown appropriately returned Henry V to its place as the capstone to the Henriette, but this is the exception rather than the rule. The majority of productions of Henry V have suffered from liberal edits which have turned the characters into caricatured mouthpieces who represent the producer's political vision. These distortions have created a new play entirely, and the most popular versions of Henry V have not revealed Shakespeare's Henry, but rather one which served its creator's particular purpose. A similar problem has befallen Richard III, but the trouble is more acute with Henry V. Act 1-1, which is not in the quattro version of the play, has a history of being deleted by such varied artists as Charles Keane in 1859, the BBC in 1960, and the Royal Shakespearean Theatre in recent years. The subsequent court scene, Act 1, Scene 2, is another common victim of the editor's pen. Almost everyone, including the two films, erases all mention of England's Scottish problems. We must not only arm to invade the French, but lay down our proportions to defend against the Scot, who will make road upon us with all advantages. Well, they of those marches, gracious sovereign, shall be a wall sufficient to defend I inland from the pilfering borderers. You do not mean the coursing snatchers only, but fear the main intentment of the Scot, who hath been still a giddy neighbour to us. For you shall read that my great-grandfather never went with his forces into France, but that the Scot on his unfurnished kingdom came pouring like the tide into a breach, with ample and brim fullness of his force, galling the gleaned land with hot essays, girding with grievous siege castles and towns, that England, being empty of defence, hath shook and trembled at the ill neighbourhood. Now, Shakespeare uses these scenes to explain the reasons for the invasion of France, and in altering them, we alter the audience's understanding of the war. By editing these two scenes, producers play the role of spin doctors, turning everything that follows into theatrical propaganda. But there's another reason to perform the play as Shakespeare wrote it, other than just because we should be performing the play as Shakespeare wrote it. The first two scenes both reveal important information about Henry's character and serve as a careful illustration of the fractured state of Henry's court. 
That King Henry is dealing with a questionable claim to his throne is an aspect of the character commonly absent from the most widely known interpretations of Henry V. As Jonathan Dollymore and Alan Sinfield wisely remark, quote, The obsessive preoccupation of the play is insurrection. The king is faced with actual or threatened insurrections from almost every quarter. The church, treacherous fractions within the ruling class, slanderous subjects, and soldiers who undermine the war effort, either by exploiting it or by skeptically interrogating the king's motives, end quote. In bringing the country to war against France, Henry can be seen as following his father's deathbed advice, given in Henry IV, Part II. Be it thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels that action, hence borne out, may waste the memory of the former days. It's become almost commonplace to interpret those former days as a reference to Henry's reckless youth, but they could equally apply to Henry IV's own past. His former days, after all, include rebellion, usurpation, the controversial murder of Richard II, and two uprisings dramatized in Henry IV Part I and Part II. The pasts of both father and son echo throughout Henry V. Thematically, Henry spends most of his play haunted both by his former companions, that's Pistol, Bardolph, and Nim, and the memory of his father's rebellion. And Henry himself reveals guilty feelings towards the way in which his father took the throne. Not today, O oh Lord. Oh, not today. Think not upon the fault my father made encompassing the crown. I, Richard's body, have interred new, and on it have bestowed more contrite tears than from it issued forced drops of blood. Five hundred poor I have in yearly pay, who twice a day their withered hands hold up toward heaven to pardon blood. We also know that there is a clear threat to the throne in the guise of Edward Mortimer, who Richard II named his rightful heir. That there are those in his court who support Mortimer is indicated both by the rebellions in Henry IV Part I and II, and in the assassination plot Henry uncovers in the traitor scene of Henry V, where it is revealed that at least one of the traitors was motivated for something other than gold. In too many productions, Henry enters the play as, to quote Harold Bloom, a ruler, quote, matured into the mastery of power, end quote. But this is dramatic death. If Henry has already matured, then his character cannot develop. Shakespeare knew this, which is why his Henry begins the play as a king who must convince both others, and possibly himself, that the crown is something he deserves. The story of Henry V is perfectly contrived to transform Henry from one sort of king into another. The play completes the metamorphosis which began in Henry IV Part I, and if Henry IV Part I and II are concerned with how a prince becomes a king, then Henry V is concerned with how a king becomes a legend. What sort of leader is Henry at the start of the play? There are few occasions when we can judge for ourselves. Only once do we witness him holding court, and we are mostly left to view Henry through the opinions of others. In the French court, the Dauphin claims England is, quote, idly kinged, end quote, and the constable takes the opposing side. Both opinions are based on hearsay and rumor. The French only know what their spies have told them. Over on the English side, we hear opinions from Canterbury and from Exeter when he visits the French court. In the latter case, the veracity of the comment cannot be trusted since Exeter is hoping to intimidate the French court. This leaves only Canterbury's description given to the Archbishop Eli in the secret cloisters of Henry's castle. Hear him but reason in divinity, and all admiring with an inward wish, you would desire the king were made a prelate. Hear him debate of commonwealth affairs, you would say it hath been all in all his study. 
list his discourse of war, and you shall hear a fearful battle rendered you in music. Turn him to any cause of policy, the Gordian knot of it he will unloose, familiar as his garter. But when he speaks the air, a chartered libertine is still. Canterbury is not discussing an achieved reality, for like Exeter and Henry himself, he has every reason to exaggerate. He is testing Eli's loyalties. His motives only become clear when we recall the rebellion in Henry IV Part II. As this involved the Archbishop's group, there is every reason for Henry to fear that he may not have the full support of the Church. Canterbury is hoping to bring Henry assurance that in exchange for war, the men of the Church will give him, quote, spiritual convocation, end quote, greater than any given to his ancestors. The implication is clear. Use the war to increase the Church's revenue, and in exchange, Henry can be assured that a betrayal from within the Church will not be repeated. For Canterbury to offer this, he must know whether men like Eli are on his side. His hyperbolic comments, then, are contrived to bait Eli into revealing his true opinions of the king. Consider that, following the compliments, there is an abrupt change, slightly inserted to give Eli an invitation to slander the king, should he so desire. Which is a wonder how his grace should glean it, since his addiction was to course his vein. His company is unlettered, rude, and shallow. His hours filled up with riots, banquets, sports, and never noted in him any study, any retirement, any sequestration from open haunts and popularity. But Eli does not take the bait. He says, quote, The strawberry grows underneath the nettle, and so the prince obscured his contemplation under the veil of wildness. Canterbury is satisfied, and only now does he reveal to Eli the full extent of his plot. In editing slash deleting these scenes, audiences lose an important glimpse into the scheming background to Henry's court. It is likewise self-defeating when the characters are played for laughs, such as in the Laurence Olivier movie where Canterbury was played as a buffoon. Our one glimpse of Henry the politician does not reveal a monarch at the height of his powers. Shakespeare's version of Act 1, Scene 2 reveals a Henry at the mercy of his courtiers, and the scene's very length is driven by Henry's inability to decide whether or not to go to war. Now, most interpretations of this play take their cue from the opening chorus, which depicts a, quote, warlike Harry, end quote, who strides onto stage ready to assume, quote, the port of Mars, end quote. But if Henry truly was anxious to unwind his bloody flag, then Act 1, Scene 2 would have no dramatic worth. Canterbury would have little need for Eli, nor would he and other nobles have to spend the scene bribing, cajoling, and flattering Henry into authorizing an invasion of France. It takes 220 lines for Shakespeare's Henry to make up his mind. This does not indicate that it was an easy choice to make. Henry is perfectly aware that the church hopes to use him to further their aims. After warning Canterbury not to fashion, rest, or bow his interpretation of Salic law, he adds, Therefore, take heed how you impawn our person, how you awake our sleeping sword of war. We charge you in the name of God, take heed. Later, he expresses concern that England will be attacked by Scotland. As mentioned earlier, this dialogue is almost always cut, which is an unfortunate trend as the dialogue regarding Scotland both sets up England's national disharmony and reveals how greatly Henry is still influenced by the events of Richard II. His father, after all, organized his rebellion while Richard was off fighting the Irish Wars. Given Henry's own shaky claim to the throne, how can he be certain that the same will not happen to him if he goes gallivanting off to Scotland? Throughout the first act, each character in his own way seems to anticipate Henry's concerns over insurrection. Remembrance of these valiant dead, 
and with your puissant arm renew their feats. You are their heir, you sit upon their throne. The blood and courage that renowned them runs in your veins. You are their heir. You sit upon their throne. Shakespeare has given Eli words designed to soothe Henry's fears regarding his right to the crown. Uncle Exeter takes up the same theme. Your brother, kings and monarchs of the earth, do all expect that you should rouse yourself as did the former lions of your blood. While Westmoreland is less subtle. Never king of England had nobles richer and more loyal subjects whose hearts have left their bodies here in England. All this flattery is later echoed by the traitor Cambridge, who tells Henry that, quote, never was monarch better feared and loved, and quote. His partner Grey adds, quote, those that were your father's enemies have steeped their galls in honey, end quote. It is notable that at least five separate characters use the same tactic whenever they want to soothe Henry. Now, the Captain Fluellen may compare Henry to Alexander the Great, but he is more like an Achilles. His heel is very large and all too easy to see. Whether or not Henry truly believes the flattery of his courtiers is something for performers to decide. In either case, the carrot the Canterbury and Eli dangle ultimately proves too tempting for him to dismiss. These first two scenes form the entire foundation of Henry V, and they themselves are built on the events of the preceding plays. Isolating the play only hinders our appreciation of Henry's personal motivation. War is never impersonal. The Trojan War was fought because one man stole another man's wife. Henry V is no less emotionally involved. Henry's character arc began as far back as Richard II, recall when he was called an unthrifty son, and of course it continued during the Henriad, with his defeat of Hotspur, his reunion with his father, and the banishment of Falstaff. All of these things can be used to mark his progress. But the apotheosis does not truly occur until the Battle of Agincourt, and until then, Henry must continue to fight the terror of insurrection provoked by his father's deeds. Much attention has been paid to the traitor scene and Henry's lengthy diatribe against Lord Scroop, and it is useful to remember that this speech is very much a public display. Recalling his shaky claim to the throne, Henry is certain to frame his denunciation to suggest that Scroop's treason was done out of greed. The oblique reference to Edward Mortimer would seem to imply that Cambridge does not believe Henry has the right to the throne. Yet Henry goes out of his way to make certain that nobody thinks that this was the traitor's true motivation. And this man hath for a few light crowns lightly conspired and sworn unto the practices of France to kill us here in Hampton to the which this night no less for bounty bound to us than Cambridge's hath likewise sworn. Henry's love of theatre is well known. He is always play-acting, whether at the start of the traitor scene or later during the glove scene with Williams and Captain Fluellen. Now he does it again, and throughout the scene proves to be very much aware of his audience. Henry is a man who teaches by example. Later he will use Bardolph to teach his soldiers a lesson about thievery. For now, he will teach his nobles that treason is nothing less than, quote, another fall of man, end quote. Henry's next appearance is his famous speech during the Siege of Hartfler, once more to the Breach, dear friends, once more. In performance, the speech is most often done as glorious rhetoric. Both Lawrence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh relate the speech from horseback, a tradition which has apparently been aped ever since the 19th century. Olivier performed the speech as a successful battle cry, but if this moment is truly the climax of Henry's development, then the character has nowhere to go. His transformation is already complete. 
Shakespeare clearly had something else in mind. In both the structure of the speech and the scenes that follow, all evidence suggests that Henry's rhetoric falls mostly on deaf ears. Rather than a battle cry, his speech at Harfleur is a desperate plea. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. This is not a speech on the eve of battle, for we know the fighting has already begun. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Henry's troops are clearly in retreat. If the men were responding to his call to arms, there would be no reason for him to bother with the speech's other 34 lines. Nor would Henry need to change his tactics as he does throughout the text. Consider that he begins the speech speaking to his dear friends, presumably Exeter and the other dukes. He moves on to the noble English, his captains and officers, and finally he pleads with the good yeomen who are his common soldiers. W. McQueen Pope reports that in a 1900 production starring Lewis Waller, the scene at Harfleur was, quote, a grim, sweaty place, raking of death, slippery with blood. In desperation, Henry climbed upon a great mass of fallen masonry and stood there, quivering, virile, sword in hand, a thing of force and strength, panting to regain his breath, end quote. This is the right direction, since Henry's speech seems to have only limited success. He is mocked by Bardolph and Pistol, who poke fun at the speech and song. They have to be goaded into battle by Flewellen, and who, in the very next scene, is himself milling about with the other captains. Now, this scene is another good indication of the domestic problems within Henry's court. The Irish McMorris complains about Henry's tactics, while the Welsh Flewellen is more interested in disputing military procedure than in defending the king. The important point, dramatically, is that the captains are not very engaged in Henry's little war. It could even be suggested that, like Pistol, Nim, and Bardolph, they are also avoiding the fight as much as they can. In both these scenes, Shakespeare demonstrates the sort of army Henry is stuck with. A host of braggarts and vain officers obsessed with their own opinions. How different this is from Bolingbroke's insurrection in Richard II, in which he seems to have no trouble mustering a loyal force. This juxtaposition can hardly help wane on Henry, especially since some of his father's followers, such as Harry Percy, went on to their own rebellion in Henry IV, Part 1 and Part 2. Henry's uncertainty is made clearer in his barbarous threats to the governor of Harfleur. Knowing he cannot rely on his army, he resorts to a reckless bluff to gull the enemy into surrender. That his threats of rape and dismemberment are a bluff is clear from how the other characters react, or rather don't react to them. Nobody objects to the king's threats, nor does any character comment on them after the fact. This silence is striking, especially given that later in the play, the soldiers will feel the need to defend Henry's order to kill the French prisoners. This is in Act 4. Far from revealing a barbaric king, Shakespeare gives us a man who is continuing to struggle with his own ineffectual leadership. He knows that he lacks the brawn and tries to turn to his brain to win the day. Henry V's 42 speaking roles are rarely a concern for film and television productions, but they do put it at odds with the stage producer's budget, a factor which often leads to characters being cut or amalgamated. Yet, with few exceptions, even the film versions present the nobles in both the English and French courts as a band of interchangeable extras. In all cases, the various nobles become appendages of the king, reducing them to little more than an oil painting of cheerleaders. Closer analysis, though, reveals that these satellite characters are completely distinct, and many are thematically linked to Henry's development and the events of the Henriad. There is dramatic importance in the way Shakespeare contrasts the French and English courts. 
The character of Charles VI may or may not be insane, historically he was, but he is never presented as a threatened king. His courtiers may squabble, but in the end, they are united against a common foe. Such is not always the case with their English counterparts, who reveal themselves to be a great band of pessimists. Only Exeter and Westmoreland seem to ever support the king, recall that they are the only ones to speak in favor of the war in Act I. Not everyone wants him to unwind the bloody flag, and until the Battle of Agincourt, many of Henry's courtiers are nothing but rigid thorns in his side. Other nobles prove equally sour. On the eve of Agincourt, the Earl of Salisbury gives a melancholy God's sentiment. strike with us. Tis a fearful odds. God by you, princes all. Hark to my charge. If we no more meet till we meet in heaven, then joyfully, my noble Lord of Bedford, my dear Lord Gloucester, and my good Lord Exeter, and my kind kinsmen, warriors all, adieu. The consistent unenthusiasm of Henry's nobles climaxes on the morning after Henry returns to camp. Numerous productions have portrayed the St. Crispin's Day speech as a rallying guide to the troops, but Shakespeare clearly intended for the St. Crispin's Day speech to be spoken only to Henry's brother-in-arms. Oh, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. Was he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are a now to do our country loss, and if to live... No faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honour as one man more thinks would share from me. For the best hope I have, oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. It is the nobility who Henry needs, and the St. Crispin's Day speech is the climactic release of a frustration which has been mounting throughout the play. The success of the rhetoric is instantaneous, and Warwick instantly claims that, quote, you and I alone, without more help, could fight this royal battle. Meanwhile, the Duke of York begs to be allowed to lead the vanguard. Later, on the battlefield, Suffolk and Talbot die, valiant deaths, and both Flewellyn and Gower are seen to praise Henry's leadership. But perhaps the most satisfying for Henry is the moment when the ever-gloomy Gloucester finally returns braggart, as Mountjoy returns to the field with eyes that are humbler than they used to be. The litmus test for the director's politics can always be seen in how they cut or stage the Battle of Agincourt. The sequence of events have been so maligned by its interpreters that it is probably useful to examine Shakespeare's original text. Here, in chronological order, is what the bard lets us see in Agincourt. The first scene. Pistol captures a French soldier and extracts a ransom on pain of death. The second scene. The French, badly beaten, consider desertion and suicide. The third scene. We hear reports of valiant deaths by the Dukes of York and Suffolk. The fourth scene. The French would take the field, and Henry orders that every soldier kill his prisoners. The fifth scene is not in the folio, but it is in the quattro, and here, Pistol cuts his prisoner's throat. Scene six. The French have killed the boys guarding the army's baggage. Gower insists that it was this which provoked Henry's order to kill the French prisoners. Flewellyn believes him, even though we, the audience, know it was really the other way around. And scene seven. The French surrender. 
So there is an ambiguity to Shakespeare's version of things that reveal the anarchy and confusion of war, but what is most striking is the lack of battle scenes. Shakespeare structured his play, and the whole Henriad, specifically to show that there is no logic to war. Rebellion follows rebellion, each provoked by some amalgamation of politics and ambition. In focusing the Henriad on the development of Henry, he is able to explore not war itself, but its effect on those who survive it. Henry spends most of Henry V haunted by the uprisings that plagued his father. This narrative decision seems to have been deemed unsatisfactory to nearly everyone who has ever produced the play. For nearly a century and a half, directors have tried to compensate for the lack of battle scenes by interpolating some of their own. Olivier and Brana both took advantage of cinematic technology to show fleets of arrows, thundering armies, blood-curdling cries, etc., etc. In all cases, these additions have been made to either glorify war or condemn it. The order to kill the prisoners is either removed or spotlighted, as in a 1984 production in Central Park, directed by Wilfred Leach, where Henry killed the soldier himself. When the order to kill the prisoners is cut, the murder of the boys by the French, which is always included, cannot help but come across as an unprovoked act of barbarism. This allows directors to make a comfortable delineation between good and bad, but it also radically alters Shakespeare's depiction of the war, rendering it an easy narrative for audiences to follow. Having succeeded at Agincourt, Henry has gained all that he has set out to do. He has assured the support of the church, gained the confidence of his subjects, and united his fractured country. Now all that is left for Henry is to measure victory's cost. Mercy is an important theme in Henry V. Henry shows none to the traitors, Bardolph, or the French prisoners. True, he orders a man freed during the traitor scene, but assuming that man ever existed, this is done merely to bait Scroop and the other traitors. At the end of the war, however, Henry gives the slanderous Michael Williams a glove full of crowns and is so struck by the deaths of his enemies that he orders their deaths to be respected. The cynic might argue that Henry is play-acting here, just as much as he does elsewhere, that these are crocodile tears for the benefit of the public. The quality of this grief, then, would be a question for the actor. What is clear from the text is that Henry's sincerity has been completely believed. This empathy adds to the myth of a charitable and humble king, a myth which he already begins to reinforce on his return to England. All of this is a very lengthy way of saying something, which can be said rather quickly. Performers who begin the play with Henry as warrior king lose the opportunity to explore the full dramatic weight of the Battle of Agincourt. Instead, they use the moment to showcase the many tragedies of war. And while this is a laudable goal, war is not a character and cannot ever steal the spotlight from the people on stage. Henry V is about how politicians use war to advance their own interests and their own image with the public. The final act of Henry V consists of Henry's attempts to conquer Princess Catherine as easily as he conquered her native France. That Henry's character still needs to develop is the only reason to justify this pointless courtship scene, for though it's a crowd-pleaser, it has little to do with the rest of the action of the play. Once again, Shakespeare stumbled in his plotting and found himself at the end of Act 4 with nowhere to go for Act 5. Until now, Henry has had no use for women. The only w women we've seen him with are those of Eastcheap, and even then he pays them very little attention. He is decidedly asexual until Catherine comes along, provoking the question as to whether he has really succumbed to love at first sight, or if his seduction is merely that of the politician. 
The courtship scene is often played in the same manner. Catherine is coy, but in the end she succumbs to Henry's charms. This is certainly a pleasant interpretation, but it is not necessarily supported by logic or by Shakespeare's text. We know that Henry has already rejected Catherine once. The chorus tells us as much in the prologue to the third act. And we know that Henry's invading army has killed various members of Catherine's family. Her desperation to speak English, shown in Act 3, Scene 4, as it appears immediately after the English victory at Harfleur. Nor does she spend the courtship scene implying anything other than resignation for her fate. Come, your answer in broken music, for thy voice is music and thy English broken. Therefore, Queen of all, Catherine, break thy mind to me in broken English. Wilt thou have me? That is, as it shall please the roi, mon père. Nay, it will please him well, Kate. It shall please him, Kate. Then it shall also content me? She follows this with a refusal to so much as let the king kiss her hand, which provokes him to kiss her by force. It is striking that Henry does not wait for permission to kiss her, and that his final line before doing so instructs her, to be yielding. Certainly the joy of theatre is that this scene can be played any way the actors want to, but it's important to note that the happier version is only possible due to a large cut made by nearly practically every major production. Immediately after the other nobles return, there is some body talk between Henry and the Duke of Burgundy about how best to break apart Catherine's quote, virgin crimson of modesty, end quote. Aside from the sexist nature of the dialogue, it also questions the strength of Henry's charms, for it reveals that his attempts at courtship may have been less than successful. Yet they do wink and yield as love is blind and enforces. They are then excused, my lord, when they see not what they do. Then, good my lord, teach your cousin to consent, winking. I will wink on her to consent, my lord, if you will teach her to know my meaning. For maids well-summered and warm-kept are like flies at Bartholomew-tide, blind, though they have their eyes. And then they will endure handling which before would not abide looking on. But this moral ties me over to time and a hot summer, and so I shall catch the fly, your cousin, in the latter end. And she must be blind, too. As love is, my lord, before it loves. It is so. We are reminded not only of Henry's chauvinism, but that Catherine is essentially a sexual object given away by her father in order to bring about a peace. More importantly, we see that Henry's prowess in love may not equal his abilities in war. Shakespeare's Henry is an aggressive chauvinist, and for this reason, presumably, countless productions have altered him by discarding this part of the scene. Audiences are left with a much more comfortable interpretation of both Henry's character and the ending of this complicated play. When maintained, however, this final dialogue has the power to not only subvert the myth, but also conclude the development of Shakespeare's major theme. This is what war has done to Prince Hal. I said before that the play was about how politicians use the war to advance their own image, but war has an effect on the person as well. At Harfleur, Henry tells the governor that he is a soldier, a name that in my thoughts becomes me best. Much later, he tells Catherine that he speaks to her as a plain soldier, that he loves her cruelly, that he will get her with scrambling, and that she must prove a good soldier breeder. In his discussion with Burgundy, he declares that maidens often yield when love enforces and vows that he will catch the fly, your cousin. When Catherine refuses to be kissed, 
he has the arrogance to believe that, quote, nice customs curtsy to great kings, end quote, which is another way of saying that he's achieved the confidence to believe he can take whatever he wants. If nothing else, the events of the play have helped Henry to realize where his true strengths lie. He has fought to prove his right to the crown. He has fought to claim his rights in France. Now he will fight for Catherine with full certainty that he will conquer her as well. Henry has proved his worth, but there is a cost to this, and Shakespeare shows it in this last scene. The critic Emma Smith wrote, quote, To stage Henry V has always been a political act, and most often consciously so, end quote. So long as there are wars, Henry V will probably continue to be popular for all the wrong reasons. The play's importance should be related to itself rather than its dubious connection to current events. In the end, a production of Henry V, which succeeds the best, is one that views the play in context with the rest of the Henriad and is focused on the transformation of the characters and not on a certain social or political theme. Using the play as a patriotic romp, as Laurence Olivier did, or to highlight the brutality of war, as Kenneth Branagh did, are simply two versions of the same problem. In both cases, the politics of the presenters are overriding Shakespeare's dramatic intent. War is a set piece. It is the background for the characters of Henry V. It is the way we are altered and changed by war that should be the focus of anyone who would present Henry V. For it is this topic which, unfortunately, will always be of universal concern. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. The popularity of Henry V means there's no shortage of filmed versions, but the two which have become the most popular are the 1944 one by Laurence Olivier and the 1989 version by Kenneth Branagh. Each has its own strengths and weaknesses, but perhaps what's more important is the way in which the film's popularity has influenced the traditional interpretation of Henry V. As I've said, the act of producing Henry V outside the Henriad is a lot like showing a child only Return of the Jedi without showing them any of the preceding films. Yet, the popularity of the film versions has influenced the traditional interpretation of Henry V. In the end, you really should avoid both films and just watch the Hollow Crown miniseries from the BBC or seek out one of the other versions that treat Henry V as an extension of all the plays that came before it. But if you are going to put Olivier and Branagh in the Colosseum, then my advice is to bet on Branagh. Both films establish a myth that has nothing to do with Shakespeare, each set up Henry as a warrior king, and use the play as a means of discussing war. Olivier designed the film to be propaganda, for by the time the film was released, England was in the fifth year of World War II. Given that France was in the hands of the Nazis, a play about a heroic England conquering its evil French enemies couldn't help but resonate with British audiences. Nearly 50 years later, Branagh made a version that highlighted the cost of war. Given that this was the end of the 80s, you could call it a response to the Falkland Wars, Vietnam, or one of the many other conflicts that had sprung up across the world in the post-war era. The highlight of Olivier's film is the pomp and ceremony, with each speech designed to be a rallying cry to the troops. Branagh, on the other hand, features blood, grit, and a four-minute tracking shot in which the English collect the dead. Now, given my esteem for the Henriad, my own preference is for versions that portray Henry V as a continuation of Richard II and Henry IV Part I and II, and in this respect, Branagh's version wins out over Olivier's. I have never been enamored with Olivier's Henry V, and his version plays so fast and loose with the text that I wonder if anyone unfamiliar with it can really appreciate what's going on. 
The film remains a product of its time, a fevered patriotic romp designed entirely for those fighting for king and country. Branagh's version is at least more accessible, and I enjoy Branagh's muted, more reflective Henry, who at least seems to appreciate the dangers of war. This, I warrant, is closer to Shakespeare's original intent. Olivier also cuts a lot of Henry's less enviable qualities, such as his threats to pillage Hartfuller, his execution of the traitors, and the hanging of Bardolph. Branna, on the other hand, doesn't shy away from showing Henry turn away from when Bardolph is hung, and he also incorporates elements from Henry IV Part I and II in an effort to make Pistol, Nim, and Bardolph a little more meaningful. This is a really good idea for anyone planning to remove Henry V from its three predecessors. I really wonder what a novice audience makes of Pistol and his merry band, for their storyline in the play is generally unsatisfactory, and their presence only makes sense when we know that they are manifestations of Henry's former wild days. The scene of Falstaff's death, which makes no sense to anyone not familiar with the Henriad, becomes an insular thing of muted importance. Branna at least tries to make it resonate by having a flashback incorporating text from earlier plays and having Branna shown on screen cavorting with Falstaff, Bardolph, Pistol, and Nim. So in the end, Branna's version is the much stronger one, and I would recommend watching that over Olivier. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, what happens when you don't listen to a soothsayer and ignore your wife's bad dreams? Julius Caesar finds out when he has a really bad day on the Ides of March. If you like what you heard today, leave a review in the iTunes store or somewhere else online. It really helps to spread the word. For more information about this podcast, you can check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. And hey, while you're there, you can check out all the other things I do with my time, including how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. 18 plays down, 20 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>